RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. All new starships in a larger size format and officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Shinjo for only $9.95 with free shipping. For details, visit eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 297, Rivals. What are the odds? It's Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week, we roll the dice on another episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether it holds up today. This week, Rivals, the one where O'Brien squares off against Bashir, Principal Snyder squares off against Prince Humperdinck, and Kira squares off against a stairwell. John's got trivia coming up in a moment, but first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, we turn things over to the Trivia King. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, please say hey again to Mr. John Champion. Well, hello again. Back to all of you. Trivia for today's episode, Rivals. The story is by Jim Trombetta and Michael Piller. Jim we mentioned before since he got the story credit on The Forsaken, and he had been kicking around this story as a pitch since season one. Michael Piller bought it, but he knew it would need some work. So the script duties went to Joe Minoski. Joe, of course, had been around since TNG, contributing a lot there. His first DS9 credit was Dramatis Personae, and he has just two more credits on this show before we catch up with him again on Voyager. Definitely a lot of script changes in this one. Originally, this would have been centered on Quark, as he had a device that gave him great luck. Martus was added to the story later, and it was even considered that he would be a regular or recurring character as a foil for Quark. And one other thing about Martus. It was considered at one point to make him Guinan's son, and they wanted Whoopi in a crossover appearance, but she wasn't available. So all the references to Whoopi Goldberg, or to Guinan specifically, were cut out of the script. This was directed by David Livingston. Uh, Rules of Acquisition was the most recent of his episodes that we discussed. And of course, David's is a familiar name since he has been around since the beginning of TNG. I hope you like that racquetball set. Uh, it's the only time you're going to see it. <laughs> this is an overlay for the Hollow Suite. And come to think of it, why would O'Brien build a racquetball court when the Hollow Suite could just become one whenever he needs it? But yes, the Wait. physical. Mm-hmm. Well, I have an answer to that question. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, the, the Hollow Suite costs money per minute, apparently. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, yeah. Quark owns that. Uh, they've got a station that can accommodate 7,000 people. There are 300 people on that. I don't understand why it doesn't have racquetball courts all over the place. You could have a racquetball court for every person on DS9. <laughs> you could. <laughs> there's a, there's a yeah. room for Keiko. There's a yeah. room for Miles. There's a room for Molly. And then mm. uh, he's put in a racquetball court because there's that much room on Deep Space Nine. Yep. Yep. I like that idea. Now, I mentioned Guinan, of course, Elorians, uh And Guinan is the only one that we've met so far. Uh, like Soren, though, well, we, we haven't met Soren since we haven't actually gotten to Generations. That movie would be out a full 11 months after this episode aired. So just to, to flesh out the whole story of the Elorian, so far, all we know about when this episode aired was Guinan. Let's talk about guest stars. Uh, Rowana, 
is played by Barbara Boson. Now, genre fans may know her from The Last Starfighter as Alex's mom, Jane, uh, but she is best known for playing Faye Ferrillo on Hill Street Blues, a role that got her five Emmy nominations. She earned another nomination for co-starring in the miniseries Murder One, Diary of a Serial Killer. That's the end of her professional on-screen credits, though she's made a few appearances as herself in documentaries and has racked up a couple of writing credits as well. She was married to Stephen Bochco. Alcia is played by Kay Callan. Now, Kay started in theater but hit the ground running with a number of TV appearances since the early 70s. She really hasn't let up since. You may have seen her in How I Met Your Mother or Carnival. This one's for you, Ken. She was in Moonlighting. Nice. She is also well-known for playing Martha Kent in Lois and Clark. Albert Henderson makes a brief appearance as the snoring alien cause. Albert started his professional on-camera career later than most actors. He was born in 1915, and his first credit comes in 1957. Now, things picked up from there, and by the early 60s, he had a recurring role as Officer O'Hara on Car 54, Where Are You? Guest appearances continued. Kojak, Lou Grant, Chips, he even had roles in Big Top Pee Wee and Leaving Las Vegas. We lost Albert in 2004. Finally, Chris Sarandon plays Martus Mazur. Then and now, Chris Sarandon is a pretty well-known actor with an extensive resume. I can only highlight a few of those here. He was Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride. In the TV movie The Day Christ Died, he was, uh, Christ. He's probably best known for playing the vampire next door, Jerry Dandridge, in Fright Night, a role so identified with him that he voiced the character in a video game and then had a cameo as JD in the 2011 remake. You may have heard of his first wife, Susan Sarandon, who got her first role when he brought her along to an audition. He is currently married to Joanna Gleason, which makes him Monty Hall's son-in-law. Rarely do we see rivalries like this one. The Red Sox versus the Yankees. Ali versus Frazier. Cork versus Martis Major. Prologue. An unlikely pair of drinking buddies is chatting it up upstairs at Quark's. She's an older woman about to hit big on a mining investment. It's a sure thing, and she can't believe she's telling the young man to whom she's speaking her secret plan. Anyway, there's just so much to do, and her young, charismatic drinking buddy offers to help right before Odo takes him in for trying to take her in. Martis Majeur is a refugee from the El Aryan system. He's a listener. And a con artist, like that old couple Odo talked to who gave Martis their financial access codes, accounts he plundered for his own gain. The conversation ends with Martis in a holding cell. Act 1. In the depths of DS9, Miles O'Brien is headed to the 24th century racquetball court he's built. He's hoped to attract other players. He's got one, Julian Bashir. Turns out he was a star player at Starfleet Academy. Younger than Miles, and better in his day than Miles ever was, it looks like the doctor is about to clean the court with the engineer. In his holding cell, Mardis can get no rest. The old guy sharing his cell snores loudly. Then seems to have died. But he's not dead. Not yet. He's got a hard luck story that Mardis, the listener, does not want to hear. But the old guy's got something shiny. A gambling device. It piques the listener's interest for a moment, though he doesn't really get the connection between this toy and the old cellmate losing everything he ever had. It all comes down to luck, they agree. Another play, though, and the old guy's face lights up. He won! And now he's dead. Martis takes possession of the gambling device, then calls out to Odo about the dead guy in his cell. Act 2. Miles is home from his game with Julian, and yeah, he lost. Big time. Keiko's about as sympathetic as we've come to expect. Her response to his complaining basically boils down to, Face it, dude, you're old. But that doesn't do it for Miles. He looks forward to a rematch. At the replimat, Julian is describing the match to Dax. Yeah, he thought Miles might drop dead during their match, like right there, on the court. At least it's over, says Dax, though Julian says, It's just beginning. 
Miles wants a rematch, and it breaks Julian's heart. He likes and respects Miles. He doesn't want him to feel bad. Back in the holding cell, Martis keeps winning on the toy he lifted off the dead cellmate, for all the good it does. He does have a bit of luck, though. The old couple Martis swindled, they've decided not to press charges. Then Martis is free to go. And go he does, straight to Quark's. He wants a drink, though he's got no money. So they gamble, a free drink against the toy that Martis has. And Martis wins. But he shows Quark the toy anyway, a push of the button, and Quark loses. And Martis wins again. And Quark is intrigued. He offers to buy the gambling device off Martis, but he's a bit too eager. Martis knows now that he's got something good. Leaving Quark's with the gambling device still in his possession, Martis comes across a shop across from Quark's. The widow who owns it is shutting down. No business is fine. It's just tough to work alone. And she senses that Martis, the listener, understands what she's saying. Back on the racquetball court, Miles and Julian are playing again, and hey, Miles is winning! Of course, Miles is also not stupid. He takes the doctor to task for obviously throwing the game in the engineer's favor. Next time, play your best game, or don't play. Back on the promenade, the conversation between the listener and the widow has escalated quickly. It's ended with her shop turned into a sort of bar-casino establishment directly across from Quark's. Act 3. Quark is obviously not happy about his new rival, complaining to Cisco that he has a contract. But that contract was with the Cardassians, so nobody cares. Business is booming at Martis Bar, though there's a sad face in the crowd. Remember the woman with the mining investment from the prologue? She's run into trouble and needs a lot of money to complete her investment. But the return will be ten times the investment. Martis says he'll see what he can do. His new employee, Rom, don't ask, is worried that Quark might try to taint the food at Martis' bar. Though Martis says, don't worry, he's had an extraordinary run of luck lately. Speaking of luck, remember that toy? The one Martis got off the dead guy in his holding cell? The one Quark was a little too eager to snag? Martis has had a bunch of them replicated, but bigger. They're all over the bar, and people are all over them. Enjoying the spoils, Martis starts to get cozy with a hostess when the widow with whom he partnered for the bar comes in. Yeah, in case you didn't know, Martis is shady, though the widow doesn't see it. In fact, she's just accepted his proposal for marriage. In Ops, Luck's running hot and cold. Dax all of a sudden has a problem basically solve itself, while Kira keeps bumping into stuff and having her computer crash. Cisco says he's been hearing a lot of bad luck stories in the last few hours. In fact, they just got word that many people with minor injuries are turning up in the infirmary. Meanwhile, things are dead as dead at Quark's, so he's trying something new. Listening to his clients. Or client. Or Miles. Miles just lost another racquetball match to Julian, and that's almost where Quark's listening ends. In his head, he's hearing a way to get his patrons back. Across the way, those giant gambling machines, everyone just won on them. Everyone. And Quark's plan for a comeback continues. Luck seems to be shifting on Deep Space Nine. Act 4. So it turns out Quark was sort of listening to Miles... He's put together a competition between Miles and Julian, a racquetball rematch. Though he failed to tell the contestants. But they can't say no because Quark has said that half the house's winnings will go to the Bajoran Fund for Orphans. Seriously, they can't say no. In the meantime, the tables are open and Quark is back in business. Back in Ops, they've noted the shift in luck as well. The problem Dax had... It's back. Meanwhile, a completely new group of people has wandered into the infirmary with bumps and bruises. To Cisco and Dax, it seems like too many coincidences to be coincidental. Dax will dig into it. Meanwhile, things are dead as dead at Martis Bar. His luck has run out. The customers are gone, and oh, he's busted. 
The widow catches Martis canoodling with the hostess. His one shot? He'll invest in that mining plan presented by the elderly woman from the prologue. Oh, she's so grateful. And Martis feels his luck turning. Even if the big toys on the bar indicate otherwise. Act 5. Miles and Julian are gearing up for their game, though Quark's trying to tilt the odds. He wasn't poisoning Julian exactly, but there was an attempt to administer an anesthetic to slow him down. No one is betting on Miles. Quark figured he would, then dose the doctor and reap the winnings. You know, for the orphans. If not for them, Julian might back out. Either way, he will play, but without the anesthetic. Martis's luck has gone from bad to worse. The elderly woman with the mining investment? She's not back yet. With his money. Back in Ops, Dax has found something, though what it means, she's not sure. A scan of solar neutrinos shows a majority of them spinning in one direction. Statistically, half of them should be spinning one way and the other half the other. Outside the station, the neutrinos are normal. Inside, they're being weird. She doesn't think the neutrinos are causing the strange runs of luck. Rather, whatever's causing the strange luck seems to be affecting things on a molecular level. It's also affecting things on the racquetball court. The match between Julian and Miles is underway, and Miles is on fire. He seriously cannot lose. Even if he tries. Julian is missing ridiculously easy shots, and his racket just broke. On its own. Meanwhile, the ball just keeps coming back to Miles. Practically on its own. He calls for Dax and Cisco to come check it out. Miles says the way the ball's behaving is impossible, though Dax says it's not impossible, just highly improbable. Whatever's affecting everything is affecting everything. So they'll use the solar neutrinos to figure out where the heart of the improbability anomaly is centered. And that leads them to Martis Bar. The toys, the things that Martis had replicated a few times over in larger form without knying what they were or how they worked... They're altering the laws of probability all over the station. So Cisco and Dax destroy them. And Martis is taken back into custody, not for having the machines, but because the couple he swindled has had a change of heart, they will press charges for his having swindled them. One more bit of luck, though. Martis gets to see his partner in the mining operation again, as she is thrown into a cell of her own for defrauding would-be investors. Things could be worse for Martis. Quark's willing to give Martis a bit of money if he'll leave DS9. The end. There's so much going on there, Ken, but I, I have just uh, three words. Okay. Uh, Bashir racquetball outfit. All right. I to me uh cosplay at some upcoming convention. Don't know which one, don't know where. You can absolutely see that the person who was designing for him designed for Jake last week as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah with true. that that sort of like yeah. green skin tight, well green to other green to blue skin tight thing that um Sirak was wearing last week. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's um yeah, it's an outfit. You're going to try to pull it off? <laughs> I don't mean pull it off. I, I mean, you're going to try to pull oh, it off. Oh, you mean to wear it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll see what I can do. I don't know. It'll definitely be you before me. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Deal. Um, now, uh, uh, there's a food moment in here that uh, needs to go recognized. Uh, Bashir has replicated what looks kind of like a chicken patty sandwich. Might be tofu. I don't know, but it's a patty of some sort on bread, which is fine and everything. I, I, I just wondered uh, about them doing a bit in the dialogue about him always going over to get the empty ketchup bottles and he's got to go through like three until he gets one that works. Also, just need to point out, those were very clearly space ketchup bottles and now I want one. First of all, I'm not sure it was ketchup. <laughs> uh, look, it, it could have been katsu sauce. Could have been yamak sauce. We don't know. Could have been. Yeah. Could have been. Uh, could have been yeah. barbecue sauce. That was actually what I was thinking. Maybe because I went to a barbecue joint earlier this week, and that's what's on my mind. Oh, you did. What's weird to me, though, is you replicate a sandwich, replicate condiments. 
Right. Yes. In the exact amount that you want. Right. That chicken sandwich. Right. Too. In yeah. fact, I would think hopefully by the 23rd century, 24th century, certainly you should be able to go, hey, it's me, Julian. Give me the usual. And it would just give you mm-hmm. exactly what you want, exactly the way you want it, as opposed to having to wander around because they don't have cooks. Whose job is it to refill the ketchup bottles? And I know. And yeah. like, man, if you can't even trust people to cook food. Ugh, I just, I don't know. <laughs> Many bad ideas abound. I just, but sometimes though, those replicators, we don't know what to expect. It's like, how many times on next gen did somebody go up and just say water? And, and the computer's like, uh, it, it, you know, here's a little bit, here's a lot. Right. Julian could have said ketchup, and the computer's just like, here's nine gallons of ketchup. That's true. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You have to be like Riker, though, and, and order it precisely. Although I don't remember anybody ever saying, oh, and be sure it's in a glass. <laughs> precisely. <laughs> Just come flowing out of the out of the replicator. Right. Could have happened. Yeah. Uh, uh, Quark has a good line. Uh, don't trust a man wearing a better suit than your own. Uh, interesting line. Interesting line of reasoning. I just wondered if there's a logical limit to that particular rule of acquisition. Like, you have to hit a point. You have to hit peak suit. At some point, yeah, where uh, you, you're not going to meet somebody wearing a suit better than your own. Yeah, bring it, bring it to uh, today's times. Somebody going into Tiffany's to buy something is going to be dressed nicer than somebody working behind the counter at Tiffany's. Do, mm-hmm. do you throw them out? Yeah. No, certainly, certainly not. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, um, th- there's a, another funny bit. I mean, Quark uh, cornering Bashir and O'Brien into their match. I, uh, you know, just basically announcing it. They're standing there. We didn't agree to this. And they just, they, they keep rolling with it. Uh, but honestly, if it came down to the blankets for the uh, Bajoran orphans, all they had to say was, no, replicator, give me 500 blankets. <laughs> right. You'd think so. Done. Done. The monks are happy. Uh, Bashir and O'Brien are happy. Yeah. Quirk's not happy, but who cares? Is yeah. it, is it like a greed thing? Is it just the monks automatically want more? Sure, we could ask for this, but, you know, somebody sacrificing for it is it makes it that much warmer, makes it that much better. <laughs> yeah, let's let's see a battle royale so we can tell these kids about it would, when they get their blankets. Yeah, wouldn't, yeah. That, wouldn't that be absolutely fantastic? Uh, speaking of greed and money and things, I was confused by one thing that happened. And I, I, I said, you know, don't ask why Rom was working for Mardis, pretty much because it's insignificant. It does not matter at all. But there was one thing that confused me. Um, Rom's all upset because, you know, Martis gave away all the money that they made because he was supposed to get a quarter of it. A quarter of the profits is what Rom says. And, um, and Martis says, I promised you one quarter of the profits after expenses, which is called profits, right? I mean, because it's revenue minus expenses equals profits. Now, I know there's other stuff there, right? But if you promise somebody a quarter of the profits, you don't then go, oh, but there's overhead because no. No, profit is you've already paid for overhead. You've it's already paid still for the leftover, yeah. Right. You've paid for everything. And it struck me as kind of weird. I would think even a Ferengi of, of Rom's intellect should know, <laughs> hang on a second. <laughs> that is profit. So yeah. 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 Well clearly Martis was an accountant for a major Hollywood studio. Because <laughs> that's how you do it. You can say this movie cost a hundred million dollars. It made five hundred million dollars. But now this movie costs $550 million. Right. We lost $0.5 million. How? Mm-hmm. How did you do that exactly? <laughs> right, oh, yeah. you wouldn't understand. Well, we'll just keep it's making a, more. Right. Yeah. It's a, Well, it was profits before expenses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally different thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think in this episode, we maybe have my favorite scene to date at home with the O'Briens. Hmm. Win or lose, tonight we celebrate it. It is actually uh, personal and tender and somewhat real. And it's not just them bickering over food or socks mm-hmm. or something like that. They, they kind of they played it down a little. I had a weird thing, though, and I don't know if this is good or bad to... Well, whatever. It is what it is. Remember the scene where um, where Rolaren and Picard as Galen were in the bar and they weren't doing anything intimate, but they were supposed to be yes. playing sort of an intimate moment and you really felt an intimacy between them? Right. That kiss between uh, Miles and Keiko could have been a kiss between a five-year-old and his grandma. 
There was just, I mean, there's, it, and it's weird to me because they've been playing these characters for a very long time. It actually spoke to how often we don't get real emotion from them. We get bickering yeah, from them. Yeah. That said, you're right. The rest of that scene was actually fantastic. But I kept watching the kiss going, it's like they just met on set. Well, maybe, maybe that's just the kind of relationship they have. Maybe My, so. Miles and, and Keiko. Maybe right. It's, just, it's, it's you possible. Know, yeah. What they're like. Um, I, a two-part observation here. First of all, did O'Brien just straight up break that camera on the station? I don't think so, but okay. Okay, because it looks like he, he goes toward it with his racket, and then the next thing is just static. Well, he said he was cutting the transmission, though, so I assume there's a button there. Like, um, okay. You know, like, I've got a button that will turn off this microphone. For example, okay, yes, don't make do. me yeah. use it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or make he, he me didn't, it, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like. Uh, uh, hang on, Cork. I'm going to mute this. He like no. He goes at it with a racket. So I it, maybe maybe he didn't. Maybe he's a little more respectful of the stuff. But second of all, when that happened, when he either broke or cut the feed, um, the image on the screen in Quark's is either is either perfectly clear, mm -hmm. which is cool. Uh, or it's a screensaver that looks exactly like the orange art panel behind it, which is equally cool. Which is also cool, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. that'd be neat, yeah. actually, because then you could walk behind it and be like, look, guys, I'm just ahead. <laughs> 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 or whatever. I always sort of assumed, though, yeah. it was just a projection on glass, sort of like the uh, the Phillips uh, Day of Glass. Is it Phillips? Not Phillips. Who was yeah, that? Corning. Corning has oh, okay. a video on YouTube um, that's been on there for like 10 years as we record this, I think. But it's an amazing thing called the Day of Glass and it had all these different like things that, you know, in the future you'll be able to do with glass. Again, certainly by the 24th century, you should be able to have a screen that just sort of goes blank and as a window. Yeah, yeah. That was very neat. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite uh, lines in this episode, uh, another rule of acquisition, dignity and an empty sack is worth the sack. That is uh, rule of acquisition number 109 for those of you keeping score at home. Rarely do we see toys as addictive as the one in this episode. Cup and ball. Rubik's Cube. That thing Marta stole and mindlessly reproduced. John and I will square off on Rivals in a moment, but first... But first, a word from Eagle Moss, the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection, flying in to take over all the flat surfaces in your home or office. I, I sit here in front of a very large desk where I could easily fit, I, I don't know, 70, 80 little starships. That's what you should do as well. It'd be a perfect place to put some starships. I sit here with a bunch of starships behind me. Excellent starships they are, too. Officially authorized by CBS Studios. Made from quality, solid materials, die-cast metal, and ABS materials. They are, of course, based on the CG models used in the production of Star Trek Discovery, which, of course, is a fantastic thing to base them on. Oh, sure, you could base them on the models from Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, but then they wouldn't be Discovery starships, now would they? Good point. That is, I'm glad they thought of that before we had to. <laughs> These are big ships. Uh, starting with the USS Shinjo NCC-1227, it's about eight inches from front to back. That's a pretty big ship. Comes with a display base, also comes with that collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info and original design sketches and a breakdown of the technology used on board. Now, the first ship in the collection, the USS Shenzhou NCC-1227, is available to subscribers for only $9.95 with free shipping. You go to eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships to grab that. And additional ships come every month, including the iconic USS Discovery, of course, USS Europa, the new Vulcan cruiser, that would be the Soul Car class, and that newly imagined Klingon bird of prey. They will come to you every month at an exclusive 20% discount off the standard retail price, also with free shipping. Subscribers are also entitled to free gifts worth over $100, and you can cancel your subscription at any time. For full details, go to eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. Now, if subscribing's not your thing, if there's a particular ship you want instead, you can actually shop piece by piece. For that, you go to shop.eaglemoss.com, or you can go to your local comic book shop. Uh, you'll be picking them up there for the regular price of $54.95. But again, to subscribe, go to eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. And a huge thanks to Eaglemoss for sponsoring this week's show. 
Essig for your thoughts. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that's the, the fifth time we've referenced that uh, I think so, but it's so worth it. I love that. Yeah, yeah. it's absolutely fantastic. 10,000 of them here, but uh, only one for Michael Burnham's thoughts. Like how they tied that little thing in. You know, I don't even I don't even know who Michael Burnham is. I know she's from like a here's what's weird, actually. So let's do that really quickly. So the first time chronologically that we've heard the word Isik would be when Michael Burnham says to somebody in Star Trek Discovery, Isik for your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they're like, what's an Isik? And she's like, I got no clue. Right. But then flash forward 100 years to Deep Space Nine, which was written 25 years before Discovery was. (laughs) And an Isik is actually a going form of currency. So either. She just hadn't heard of that particular form of currency or somebody was like, well, OK, the only thing that makes sense is an ISIC for your thoughts. OK, that must be a form of currency. Why don't we just make one and then we'll start people trading it that way so that this phrase actually makes a bit of sense. I love that idea. I like the mold the real world to match the, the linguistic construct. I think that's great. That's, uh, <laughs> it seems a bit ludicrous. Here's what was actually weird to me about that whole ISIC thing, though, right? Mm hmm. Uh, Quark is willing to negotiate with an enemy, a rival, one might say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quark is willing to negotiate with a rival. Here's how many Isics I will pay you to get out of town. Yeah. Pell, with whom he was maybe in love, gets a set amount and that's it. And listen, man up. I believe he actually said to her. He didn't say those words, but he said, man up. You're going to go around acting like a dude? Take this like a dude and get out of here. Mm-hmm. It just struck me as kind of, uh, it struck me as interesting and odd. I will also tell you that I pulled a bit of a John Champion. Oh, did you know? I went online and tried to figure out what the conversion rate, uh, Latinum to Isic would be. Oh, see, now that that's funny, because if I had to guess, and I did not pull a John Champion and look that up, but if I had to guess, I'm just going to say like 10,000 Isics to like a half a bar of Latinum. I, I just, I want to completely overinflate its worth. Okay, well, now here's what I actually found out. First of all, nobody's done a conversion. Okay. So now's your chance. All right. But the other thing I found out is you say a bar of latinum as if a bar of latinum is actually uh, the going rate. There are there are strips. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. There are slips, and slips. then there are strips, yep. and then there are bars, and then there are bricks. Oh, right. And right. I have not I have not been keeping up with how much was offered for what at any given time. Like, did he offer her, did he offer Pell strips of latinum? Did he offer her slips or did he offer her bars? I, I think he offered Pell bars, but I'm going to say, I'm going to go with slips being the, uh, the, the, the conversion for Isix. And again, I'm like 10,000 Isix for like a half a slip of latinum. I just want it to be worthless. I don't know. I, just in this episode, I do. Except it's not worthless because the Chris Arendon character said he would take 15 to leave. And then he was like, well, 12, because, you know, I got to eat. And then he was like, okay, 800 because I have my dignity. And that's where we find out that, you know, dignity in the sack is worth the sack. Yeah. Rule of acquisition number 109. Very good. Very good. Well, we don't know where he's going. He might be like taking the cheap route. He just, he may have no concept. I just love the idea of completely different cultures from completely, remember, different parts of the galaxy just have no no good way at all to understand the value that each other places on something. Except he did have a box of Isics to give to he did. Um, yeah. to give to the widow. Yeah, not yeah. the because there were there were two I'll, I'll widows. Except one mm-hmm. wasn't actually. I'll see it. Thank yeah. you. One wasn't actually a widow. I think, or she may have been, but she was also a con artist. Saw that coming a mile away. By the way, yeah, just, that's just saying. Yeah, uh, because you and I both saw Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. So. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when it came out, I think. Mm-hmm. That was a long time ago for me. But, but st- yeah, just, uh, all right, well, we'll save that for the next segment because... Why don't we? I, I just, Why don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. Um, but let's talk about the game. Let's talk about the actual gambling game that they have. Um, I, I, love, I love the simplicity of the game because we as the audience have no idea how it works and we don't need to. We don't need to at all. There's something so pure and relatable about that very simple reward of winning absolutely nothing of substance by doing nothing. So right. it's like playing a, a simple game on your phone. You know, some games are tough and they require skill or strategy. Others just reward you for basically being there. Uh, and they just show you lights and sounds like, oh, you launched this game here. Here's some sounds. Here's some lights. Good job. You, you did a great job at that launching this app wow i kind of want that app now so uh, let's make it and let's sell it for ten thousand dollars oh somebody did that and it got pulled 
Or yeah. some, we can sell it for some mystics, maybe. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But, but I, you know, as far as, it's a clever thing that, as far as production goes, all you have to do is show, here's a thing that lights up and people feel rewarded when they get it or they feel disappointed when they don't get it. So dramatically, it works perfectly. Mm-hmm. But there was something metaphorically that I really liked about it that, that's just, it's very easy to get sucked into the emotion of winning or losing something, whether you are playing something that has required a lot of effort and a lot of skill or something that requires absolutely nothing out of you. You know, we, mm-hmm. we've talked on our show before about uh, that fad of the Tamagotchi where it's just a little computer chip with a really cheap LCD screen. And all it wants you to do is push a button when it tries to get your attention. And that's it. And you get rewarded for doing that, or you get disappointed when your little Tamagotchi, quote unquote, animal dies. <laughs> you know? that's, that's not real. That's not completely fair, though, because there were rules to the Tamagotchi thing, right? And it was supposed to be like you're keeping a thing alive, kind of like kind of like having a plant. But you're not because it's it's a keychain. Well, right, <laughs> but, but it's a series of. I, I I sort of see what you're saying, although I mean I don't know why I'm defending the Tamagotchi. I don't really care. <laughs> That much, except that it was, I mean, that it was, you know, setting certain parameters in which to play, as opposed to this thing, which really was just, you know, you know, push a button and this happens. Now, now, now here's the thing, though. Could, could we put wagering on the Tamagotchi? Then then we introduce a whole other sure. level that's more akin, more akin to this episode, where you're like, oh, uh, $10,000 says I keep my Tamagotchi. I will bet you real lives were actually wagered on the Tamagotchi. <laughs> Tell you what, Susie, you keep that alive for a week, then we'll talk about a hamster. Yes. You yes. know that has to have happened. So I Good would say call. there was a lot of wagering on the Tamagotchi, just not for uh, not for anything as valuable as an Isik. Yeah, just, yeah. you know, living things. Um, can we talk, by the way, about... So I almost brought this up last week, actually. So so you've got the Scria come to town, right? Well, DS9, which is like a town, except with almost no people in it. Mm-hmm. You got the Scria come to town, and Cisco's like, yeah, well, I can't understand a word they're saying, and they're, you know, kind of, they're being kind of weird. I know, I will feed them. And you said, well, so it's like giving breadsticks to somebody who's gluten intolerant. <laughs> right. My assumption was that that there's something about the food replicator that will not let you... Um, yeah, produce something poisonous. We talked about this before too, with like the whole pufferfish thing. Is it the pufferfish where it's like mm-hmm. if you eat the liver mm-hmm. of it, then you die, but you eat the rest of it, and you're okay, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, goes on height. I always assume that there's something in there that's going to keep people from killing themselves. But you can go to the replicator and say, "Make this machine," and there's no part of the replicator that's reading it, going, uh, "You know, this is going to mess. I mean, potentially mess things up for people, right?" Mm-hmm. You can just take something mm-hmm. to the replicator. Like, like, could could Sulu take one of the projectile weapons that he loves so much sometimes, mm. depending on which episode of Star Trek you're talking about? Could he take one of those to the replicator and replicate a hundred guns? Would, 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 the, would the replicator... Well, okay. Or are there parameters where the replicator won't do something where it knows that the thing is potentially dangerous, so it won't replicate that? But you stick this thing in there and, and you know, you're like, well, I got no idea what this thing does. And the replicator's like, yeah, me neither. Let's make 20. <laughs> it seems like kind of an all or nothing proposition, though, because here's the thing. When it just comes to the food thing, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, A, that computer would have to accommodate for every possible compound that it could create mm-hmm. spread out over every possible biology that would consume it. Again, mm-hmm. we know nothing about the screens and it's absolutely zero. We can't even talk to them to say, hey, are you gluten intolerant? Yeah. Uh, too bad. Here are some breadsticks. So there's really no way to know. And if you keep going down that, that uh, again, the logical extent of it, well, all food can be poison if you have too much of it, the, the LD50 of water is however much water will kill half the population if they drink too much of it. Hmm. Um, it, it you know, so there's it, it, it really would be almost impossible to tell. So maybe at that point, whoever created the replicator is like, look, uh, either this thing will create food and it will have to create all the food or objects you want to create or it's got to create nothing. Because there's there's really not a good way to accommodate for all the safety protocols for every possible use of this machine. See, my assumption on the 
on the food part of the replicator was that it was just basically making scop, single-celled organic protein, right? Hmm. And then just finding ways to flavor it. But, you know, maybe chemical ways that uh, my assumption is they've sort of solved the whole thing of we're not going to kill you. I mean, yes, if you eat too much of anything, you can kill yourself. So I'm not thinking even like <laughs> yes. poisonous. It's just like, you know, you, you can actually do yourself in by, by overdoing anything. Um, yeah, I'm really just confused by a machine that'll let you make a machine that'll kill everything. See, I, I, in my mind, the replicator is uh, for food anyway, because really I'm, I'm only concerned about the food here. I know this about. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, my impression of it is that I take I, I take a, a recipe or I take the original food thing that got cooked and I say, here, computer, map this, break this down essentially like a transporter, transporter mm -hmm. replicator technology very close. Now, figure out how to reproduce that exactly cell by cell make this thing and it, it gets to make that thing again it, it's not it's not doing like the old steve martin joke where like you go to uh, the, the fast food place and it just you know everything is in a vat and cheeseburger you know right. fries here's right. your change everything scooped out of that same vat yeah. yeah other things to talk about here let's talk about odo okay well we got we got we got sidetracked but okay Oh, he did. Well, I mean, you were talking about the food thing. I'm saying it's weird to me that you could make a machine that would make other machines without knowing what those machines do. I mean, like, I, I again, yeah, you order yeah. like you order a cheeseburger and you give that to somebody who's lactose intolerant. Let, let, let's say it's exactly like what you're talking about. Right. You order a cheeseburger, you give that to somebody who's lactose intolerant. That's on you. The machine gave you exactly what you asked for. Right. Should you be able to ask a machine for something that you have no idea what it is? The machine has no idea what it is. It may have ramifications or yeah, ramifications that nobody's considering, but the machine's just like, oh, well, I guess we're doing this now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you shouldn't want that, but I, I, I think that's kind of where we are. The machine's just going to make the thing that you ask, hey, garbage in, garbage out. I, you know, I, I was thinking that term exactly. Literally. Yes. Yeah. But for yeah. something else, which I'll tell you about mm. another time. That's okay. not for here. <laughs> okay. All right. So you wanted to talk about Odo. I'm sorry to distract us from the distraction. Odo, sir. No, that's fine. Odo. So uh, at the beginning of the episode, uh, he, he arrests Martus. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe, maybe not formally, but Odo can just throw people in the brig apparently at will. Seems because like there is, yeah, there, there's a complaint, but we we don't really know the details of that complaint. Mm -hmm. um, and, and otherwise, Martus is just sort of a guy who's suspicious. Mm -hmm. So Odo's just like, yeah, I'm just going to throw in the brig because that's what I get to do here. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's well, yeah, he is wearing a Bajoran uniform. Deep, Deep Space Nine yeah. is actually under the purview of Bajor, correct? Correct. All yeah. right. So I guess he he's like a deputy. But Cisco is still the the XO. Right. Well, I mean, like if you had a if you had a building on the corner of you know twenty eighth and eighth in New York City, I'm not sure if there is a twenty eighth and eighth, by the way. But I, there is. If you had a building on the corner of twenty eighth and eighth, you might be the person who runs that building. But you know, if somebody does something wrong, you call the cops. Odo's the mm. cop there. Okay. Yeah. Cisco yeah. runs the station, but I mean, he's running facilities for all intents and purposes, right? And then doing the, the Federation stuff that needs to be federated, the Starfleet stuff that needs to be Starfleeted. Right. Um, but like Odo is, Odo is, is law and order. Yeah. And it seems like his law and order is still kind of left over from the Cardassian period. And, and maybe, hey, maybe there are similarities to the way that Bajoran law and order work anyway but he's just like it, essentially it feels like i don't like the looks of you and somebody <laughs> said something about you right so you're going in the brig yeah i remember um because uh, you and i are both world's fair fans uh i i had this uh, uh several books about the 1893 world's fair and there was a uh, that was in chicago and uh there was this breakdown of the security report for the year that the fair was uh, was open, well, two seasons within about a year, and um, it was it, it was something like, oh, it, it, you know, let's let's make up numbers like twelve hundred people arrested for shoplifting or or gate jumping or or whatever it was, and then you got uh, three hundred people arrested for public drunkenness or something like that, and then there was like. It was some other statistic. It was like 
shifty or suspicious looking people. Ten. <laughs> they're just like, like these are just the people that they just like, eh, yeah, they just look like they're up to no good. Wow. So we're just going to take them out anyway. First yeah. of all, I'm surprised. I'm, well, I'm honestly surprised that it was only ten. Yeah, I, I, again, I might be making up that number, though oh, okay. it's a significantly lower number than, you know, gate jumping or shoplifting All right. or drunkenness or whatever, or public fights or whatever it Do was. Do you think after yeah. the first, like, few, somebody was like, seriously, you can't just keep doing that? No. <laughs> maybe maybe that, that first five or ten was in, like, a week. Right. They were just right. like, yeah, you can't keep doing this. Yeah. Oddly enough, though, shoplifting went up quite a bit the following week. <laughs> right, right. Or yeah. did it. Yeah. There's one other kind of fun little thing here. It's not really a, a discussion topic. It's not really a big point. But, uh, you know, Dax says that what's happening is not impossible, just extremely improbable. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminded me of that, that old thing that you hear that's saying that, well, in a city of 8 million people like New York, a, a one in a million coincidence happens eight times a day. So that, you know, things things are not that impossible even if they are improbable it just has to do with your your perspective your your own experience maybe the limits of your experience so yeah you know interesting that they played with that little little idea for a moment in the show merriam webster describes ld50 as the amount of a toxic agent such as a poison virus or radiation that is sufficient to kill 50 percent of a population of animals usually within a certain time. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy describes Merriam-Webster as a bunch of mindless jerks who will be the first ones killed when the LD-50 of water is determined. The end of the show. What were the chances we'd make it this far, John? What were the odds, would you say, that we would get to this bit in the show? This is the show well, called... Well, go ahead. Oh, it was a rhetorical? Yeah, because, yeah pretty much. Uh, okay, because it happened. <laughs> so I'm going to say uh, one. Yeah. The, the odds are one <laughs> that, that would happen. Because we're here. We made it. Yeah. That is odd. Is it odd, yeah. so? Yeah, rivals. It's weird, actually, because so much about this so much about this episode is not about rivalry. It's about, it's about, uh, it's about odds. It's about probability or improbability, as the case may be. But, yeah, we're not talking about that, I don't guess. I guess we could, though. We should talk about the title. The the rival. Well, well, you have rivals. You have Quark versus Martis. Yes. You have O'Brien versus Bashir. You have a little bit of O'Brien versus himself. Oh. You know. Yeah. You've also got. Uh, you've of course got uh, Martis versus um, Alcia. Did you say that already? Yeah. No. 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 Oh, okay. I, and Alcia and basically anybody who she can swindle. That's but, true. But uh, con person versus yeah. con person. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not not people who go to conventions, but con artists, if you will. Anyway, so there's the title, uh, sort of dispensed with, disposed of, what have you. And now we get to the rest of it, the messages, morals, and meanings, and figuring out whether the whole thing stands the test of time. Uh, why don't we start with that one, John? Rivals, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Uh, <laughs> um, no. Yeah. No. It, it, but here's the thing. All right. So... It's not a well-produced episode, and, and and this is the interesting thing. I feel like whenever we get to this part of the show, when when we decide, uh, it, does it hold up mm-hmm. versus the morals, meanings, messages? Um, from a technical standpoint, yeah, Star Trek's really not screwing anything up at this point. It, it's not like uh, we have bad special effects. It's not like you know, it, it, dumb rookie mistakes are being made all the time. It, it's an expensive show to make, and things generally are humming along pretty well. So w- what I say when this is not a well-produced episode this time around, I'm mainly talking about the writing and and my assessment here is not out of step with how many of the people on the production felt about this show at this time or this episode at, at the time. I just kind of read, okay, what did Ira think of it? What did Joe Minoski think? What did the director think? And there's a lot of people who are not totally on board with this one. I feel like the problems are that we're jumping back and forth to characters who aren't consequential to our main cast. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not really invested in them. Sometimes that works, but in this case, it doesn't. Um, I saw the twist about Alcia coming right away. Again, we, we both saw Dirty Rotten Scoundrels that as soon as she was on screen, 
that's what I thought. I, I, I thought of that movie. Um, I was not invested in the science of what was going on. Um, not that that was really a major thing here. Um, just as a story, it didn't add up for me. It really didn't. Um, now, I, I feel like I need to add this disclaimer here. People who have written to us saying that we're not enjoying DS9 exactly the same way that they're enjoying DS9 um, will probably be upset with me saying this. So I feel like I have to repeat it again. I think DS9 is an awesome show. There are lousy episodes, though, just like there are lousy episodes of all of the Star Trek series. Sometimes those episodes are purely fun, like, say, a piece of the action, which really works just as being a piece of fun TV. Um, sometimes, like Move Along Home, it doesn't work to just be fun. And apologies to those of you who love that episode. I, I think I was talking to one of the Trek geeks, or I, I might have the story conflated. Somebody else who was telling me that they loved that episode because it felt like a camp 1960s Batman type of story, mm -hmm. just uh, walking through the game. You know, cool, and, and good on you for loving that. Um, but there are problems here, and a big part of that problem is Martis. Um, and that's not a knock against Chris Sarandon. It's just that it's a lot of telling and not showing. We're told that Elarians are listeners. We're told that he should be treated with some suspicion, but he's just presented in a way that isn't dynamic or engaging to me. Um, the converse of that is Whoopi Goldberg as Guinan. The, the listener, that being a, a character trait of hers, she nails that. And, and she's wonderful, and you feel it as soon as she is on screen. Um, now, all that said, all the problems that I have with the episode, I think there are fun morals, meanings, and messages to talk about when we get there. Uh, but, but what about you, just as, as an episode here, as a slice of production of Star Trek? Kind of? What's weird to me is they've actually done some decent comedy writing with some not comedic actors. And Chris Sarandon is, I mean, he is fantastic as Humperdinck. Mm -hmm. in the princess bride and there were times where he was delivering lines that i felt like he was doing the humperdinck impersonation i mean you've got somebody here who can do a lot of really fun stuff right yeah uh, he wasn't given a lot of fun stuff to do unfortunately but like i'd listen to his voice all day long i mean if i could talk sure. like that man you know <laughs> i mean he was really cool right yeah. um there was a there was a there was a potentially comedic part where things are falling apart around Martis's head, which means things are falling apart for Rom as well. But Rom can't stop talking to Martis about everything about his life that he hates. Right. So there's a potential for comedy about the fact that everybody wants to talk to the El Arian. But what we know from Guinan, Ro Laren doesn't want to talk to Guinan. She never wants to talk to Guinan. But she always ends up talking to Guinan because Guinan is good. It's almost like something pheromonal with with yeah. Mardis, right? It's just like you see, you meet this guy, and you just want to talk to him. I mean, when when the when the widow shop owner starts talking to him, you understand why. It's because he's doing it, right? He's working yeah. that angle. He's not working that angle with the old guy in his cell. He doesn't care. He actually says that. He says, "I'm not listening." Okay. Well, then why do we want to talk to this guy? I mean, there's a, so there's a bit of an inconsistency, a bit of a weirdness thing there. Although I'll be honest with you, I forgot that El Arian um, was what Guinan was. I thought it was funny. It's like, oh, he's a listener, Arian. Ha ha. It's funny because uh, the uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, uh, um, yeah. The other thing is, you said you weren't really invested in the science of this episode. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's because there wasn't any. No, <laughs> I, I wasn't invested in the idea that they had to have a scientific explanation for what was going on, which I, I realize you need to get there at some point. You have to solve the problem right. at some point. Right. But it, it just it, it was a layer of Star Trek technobabble that complicated and, and, and d detracted from a story that was already sort of distracting. OK, is there any such thing? Is there really any such thing as the law of probability? Yeah, as a concept, sure. As a concept, absolutely. As a physical law, though, that can be manipulated? Not, not that I'm aware of. Okay. And, and, it is a, and I, I had read somewhere that uh, 
Lawrence Krauss actually got in touch with uh, Andre, Andre Bormanis, the science advisor on this show, and a lot of Star Trek, um, saying that uh, neutrinos can't exist the way that they're describing them in the show. Right. But apparently, many, many years later, there are some scientists who, who discovered some other property of matter, and they were like, oh, well, I guess we need to come up with some new kind of definition for a neutrino, because some of those would be rotating the opposite direction of these neutrinos. So... Who knows? But <laughs> but that's still not about being governed by the law of probability. No, I mean, no, 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 no. Right. No. So it's a bit ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, and, that, and that's yeah. and that's sort yeah. of the problem that I have. I mean, like you talk about the infinite improbability drive in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what what made that so amazing was it sort of played with this pretend science idea in this science fiction setting that was completely ridiculous. In comedy, you can sort of like, you know, turn a key like that and have people go, that is mind blowing because you're already, you're already geared up for expecting the unexpected in a way. Right. To have a commander in Starfleet go, something is messing with probability. (laughs) (laughs) That to me, that to me sort of like, it it felt like it, it kind of didn't work there. And then, of course, Quark trying to buy him off to leave at the end didn't work either. I think Quark would be perfectly happy if he came by a few weeks later and found the decimated corpse of Mardis laying there. Because this is the guy who has risked the life of everybody on the ship. But he's going to pay this con man to leave. Right. Right. Mm. Have a hard time with that. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But hey, that's that's just me. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, other stuff because yeah. uh, there are there are ideas expressed in this episode. Um, Look, it, it, it's a sci-fi parable about greed, and it's also not a bad examination of the gambler's fallacy. You, you know, this this idea about the the hot streak. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that it's a fallacy that there's not really such a thing, though people, oh, maybe gamblers like to believe that there is such a thing. Um, so it was kind of fun to see them play with that. Um, I love, I love our introduction of Koss, the snoring alien. Mm-hmm. In the end, it all comes down to luck. He says right before he dies. Yes. <laughs> you know, which he actually seemed to greet as a, as a victory though. I, he did. He did. So it, it, there was something poetic about it, which is kind of, kind of, kind of fun, you know. Um, and it was. It's Martus who has the line: "When you win, it makes you lucky. When you lose, dot dot dot." <laughs> so luck really is a state of mind, but uh, but but also be aware of alien gambling machines that enhance the effect because those are just really really mess with you. Um, and I, you know, we we still don't know how to turn those machines on or off, and and we don't know what makes them work, right? And, and we don't know who made them or if they're an expression of intelligence of some. So let's shoot them, right? I was actually amazed that that was what they decided to do. It was like, well, how does it work? Well, I don't know. Well, how do you turn it off? Well, it just kind of was working. It's like, well, let's blow it up and see what happens. That is some I died in the wool, Captain Kirk, good old TOS style problem solving. <laughs> if I ever saw it. In yeah. fairness, first Kirk would have tried to talk and then turning itself off. Mm, yeah, that's true. And then that's he probably true. would have shot it. Yeah. Um, about the only thing I have, and I know it's something that we've talked about before, it is it is you have to look a gift horse in the mouth. You absolutely do. I don't know what this thing is. Well, let's make ten of them and see what happens. In the 24th century, you can make things that can disintegrate people. Yeah. You might want to find out if this will do that. Maybe after a thousand wins, I mean, maybe, maybe it killed that guy, the, the alien, you know, maybe after a number of wins, you know, whoever's touching it drops dead. That's the kind of thing you'd probably want to know if, if your luck, if your luck inexplicably seems to be going amazingly well with input from something else and you don't know what that input is or why. It might behoove you to ask the question and maybe don't build 10 more of the things. Uh, you know, in, in the hopes that, oh, well, you know, 10 times the luck then. Because uh, certainly, ooh, how's this for an ending? Your luck could run out. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. The Roddenberry Podcast Network can be found at podcast.roddenberry.com. And when you go there, you'll find Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, and The Trek Files. 
If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, The Alternate. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Curiously, an edition of the Encyclopedia Galactica, which conveniently fell through a rift in the time-space continuum from 1,000 years in the future, describes Merriam-Webster as a bunch of mindless jerks who were the first ones killed when the ALD-50 of water was determined. Oops. Spoilers. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.